Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is William Holly at WBH Radio. Thanks for tuning in. We got a very special guest joining us here today. He is a professor of history and African-American and Africana studies at the University of Kentucky, the great Dr. Derek E. White. Welcome, sir. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm excellent. I want to first say thank you for, for, for joining us. Uh, we greatly appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. White is the author of a book I just finished. have it right here on the screen. It's called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. First and foremost, Dr. White, congratulations on this great piece of scholarship. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you. I appreciate it, and I'm glad, I'm, you know, happy to be here. Glad you're having me. Uh, you know, it's always exciting to talk to folks, the good folks in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. White, I got a doctorate back in the uh, spring of 2021, doctorate of education, and all I've thought about since then is writing a book. Can you tell me about the moment you put this finished product, hardcover, in your hands? What was that like? Oh, man, it is uh, having done a couple of these. It's the best feeling in the world. You work on these for a long time, man. Everybody's like, you know, I think we get confused because politicians and celebrities, they, you know, they like, I got a book coming out and, you know, they they announce that they're doing a book and then the book come out in like a year. Right. Um, but on the scholarly side, man, those are those are labors of love, as we like to say, you know, they take. Uh, I think this book probably took me about seven or eight years just wow. to do all the research and writing and editing and, you know, covering my basis and talking to folks. And and so when you get it in your hand, man, it's like it's like a child, man. It's like uh, it's your baby, you know, um, whereas your real kids grow up and then they, they don't want nothing to do with you. Your books still love you. That's the way I like it. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. And this book came out in August in 2019. And Dr. White, you are a scholar and you know what it takes to put something like this together. Can you tell me about the moment you made up your mind or the motivation came to write this book? You said, you know what, this is what I want to do. Yeah, um, I at the time, you know, I, I was teaching at Florida Atlantic University in uh, Boca Raton, Florida, mm -hmm. uh, and I had gotten permission to teach a sports class that they had not had offered. And so I'm teaching a sports history class and I'm giving students what I called a kind of institutional biographies on the various programs. And so the state of Florida is, is, is really kind of a great place to do this kind of project in the sense that there are a lot of programs, right? There's there are old schools like the University of Florida and Florida A&M. There's mm -hmm. private schools like Miami. Uh, there are new universities, Florida Atlantic, South, South Florida, Central Florida. And so you could talk about the history of sports at those institutions and it varies at different points because of their start date. Mm -hmm. Well, students come back to me, they got Florida A&M and they're like, I don't have nothing to write about Florida A&M. And now, you know, students, are they they will tell you that they can't find anything. Sure. <laughs> um, and I was like, I don't believe you. Like Florida A&M has got this huge, robust uh, history. I know that Gaither was in the College Football Hall of Fame. My brother had been, a, a, you know, had graduated from Florida A&M. So I knew a, a decent amount about the program. And they just kept coming back, but there was no real scholarly kind of information. And so I was like, I, that cannot be. Yeah. Uh, and so I use that their kind of uh, lack of materials as a really kind of spur me to begin to do this research. I was in the state uh, and it was it was it made a lot of the early research uh, much easier to accomplish. Okay. I learned so much reading this book. Uh, it's not just black history. 
because as we know, black history is American history. But it, it's sport history. I learned a lot about leadership. I learned a lot about coaching. I learned about a lot about sports administration. And I got kind of overwhelmed thinking about putting this podcast together. Like, where would we begin? Like, so I said, I'm going to ask the author, what would you say is the, the number one thing you want readers to know after finishing this book? One, I, I, there's two things I think I wanted to do. One is uh, I wanted to undercut this idea that somehow the University of Miami, the U or Florida, the University of Florida, their great run in the 2000s, mm -hmm. like somehow they were the pinnacle of college football in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to remind uh, readers that Florida A&M was the original powerhouse in that state. Um, and then two is I wanted them to think a little bit about how black coaches managed and and facilitated in creating these programs. I think there's a lot of uh, my my thinking was a lot of naturalism about this. This is that black athletes are somehow you know black black student athletes are natural athletes, and thus of course Florida A and M had a great program, of course. And so what that does is that it undermines the kind of coaching acumen and recruiting acumen that someone like Jay Gaither or Eddie Robinson or John Merritt or any other great black coaches had. And it, it reduces them in, in stature when they're compared to their white counterparts, Bear Bryant or Nick Saban in the modern sense. Right. And, and I think that is very clear that one of the things I wanted to do was to make sure that Jay Gaither in particular, but black college coaches, HBCU coaches of that generation get their kind of flowers and accolades for the kind of geniuses that they were. You did that? <laughs> Jay Gaither, uh, he was a longtime head coach at Florida A&M. How would you describe Mr. Jay Gaither? Jay Gaither is, is, in many ways, he is the first real kind of dominant program. And I think that the, I say this in the sense that there were some great coaches before him, Cleve Abbott, uh, Billy Nix at Prairie View. Eddie Robinson is both a contemporary and lasts considerably longer. But in that run, that 25-year run, one of the things that became abundantly clear in the research and in, in, in the approach was that you know, that national titles, if you wanted to win a black college national title, it came through, it came through Tallahassee, right? It came through Florida A&M. Yes. And so many of those great programs, Eddie Robinson wins his first national title by defeating Jay Gaither and the Orange Blossom Classic, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is how other coaches had to measure their success, right? And so when you're that dominant, in many ways, I, I like it in the contemporary, I mean, is the way we think about Alabama right now, right? right. That like, you know, a successful season for Georgia last year meant that they had to go through Alabama, you know, like mm -hmm. this is the way. And so even if Alabama doesn't win, we know that they are always in the conversation. And that's what Florida A&M becomes for really about, you know, for 25 to 30 years. Um, and because they have the Orange Blossom Classic, which was basically the Rose Bowl of black college football. Right. Um, it, it became the de facto national title game. And so in some ways, Jay Gaither in this is a, is a critical cog, right? Mm -hmm. Eddie Robinson gets all the flowers and deservedly so in part because he coaches almost twice as long as Jay Gaither, like almost nearly 50 years. Eddie Robinson was at uh, Grambling State University. At, at Grambling State mm -hmm. University. And so Eddie and Grambling have this different kind of um, reputation in part because they Eddie Robinson produces more pro NFL players than anybody else uh, of a school that size. Plus, Eddie Robinson uh, coaches well into the like 1990s, right? right like right. this, is, you know, he had, like, he so, had a Burger King commercial, <laughs> right? Exactly. 
Uh, and so Gremlin is a is a unique story and um and an important story. And so I would always say that Eddie Robinson, when we just if we're just doing rankings, Eddie Robinson is the most dominant HBCU coach. Right. He is the you know he's the Godfather, but Jay Gaither is a close second. Uh, and that run between you know forty seven and and sixty nine that that twenty five years that he had forty five and sixty nine is is a really um, an amazing amazing run amazing run okay Doctor White let's get a few of the numbers show you said Jay Gaither's run is from which years forty five to sixty nine to sixty nine and much of that time the college football uh, uh, sport was segregated. In the South, it was almost exclusively segregated until, so in the SEC, uh, the University of Kentucky desegregates the SEC in 1966, I believe. Right. Uh, and and so you're really talking about that the very end of his career as a coach, he, he there are desegregated teams in the South. So he plays um, the University of Tampa mm -hmm. in 1969, which is really the first integrated team that he plays. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's like his second to last game as coach. As coach. You, you talked about you wanted to highlight that there were some black coaches that really helped to to change the game. It wasn't just athletes' natural ability. And again, Jake Gaithan, I, I said I learned a lot about coaching. I learned a lot about leadership. Jake Gaithan kind of started uh, the coaching clinic. Like, he, he said, I, I'm going to train coaches in my community. I'm going to train the high school coaches. So by the time the players get to the college level, they have the tools and the skills that I need them to have. I thought this mm -hmm. was great. Uh, Dr. White, I'm a local high school coach. I, I'm going to start going to the junior high school coaches. Let's put a coaching clinic together so that the, the athletes can have the tools and the basics. Uh, what are some other uh, elements that he added to the coaching profession especially down there and when it comes to the the black community yeah so so the coaching clinic is i think one of the vital things like you know across um america white coaches had coaching clinics so like the, the coaching clinic wasn't unusual mm -hmm. but what jake gaither does for hbcus is that he creates he doesn't create the first coaching clinic but he creates the most organized and the longest running coaching clinic and so one of the things that he does is has an integrated coaching clinic and so coaches from University of Florida, Florida State, uh, 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 Woody Hayes from Ohio State's there, Bear Bryant's there as an assistant coach. So all the great coaches of, of that era spend some time in Tallahassee going over X's and O's. And I think that, that one of the things that it does for black coaches, and Gaither in particular, is that they get to compare their knowledge against these guys who are getting all these kinds of accolades, and they realize that they are good coaches, right, that they know these kinds of things. There's a great uh, there's a great letter I found. One of my favorite examples was um, uh, that Howard, who was the uh, coach Howard, who was the coach at Clemson, where, you know, Howard's Rock, where they run down the hill at uh, okay. at, at Clemson. Mm -hmm. uh, Howard was a notorious racist. Right. Like, uh, you know, Daryl Hill, who was the first black player at the University of Maryland, talked about the kind of the kind of uh, ordeal that he had when he showed up at Clemson, where the coach was actually calling them all kinds of N words. Right. But Howard is at the coaching clinic with Jake Gaither in the summer. So some of it makes me think that some of this racism was both real and performative for his, you know, his boosters. Right. But he goes to this coaching clinic and he writes a letter back after the coaching clinic. And he says to Coach Gaither, thank you for fixing my run game. Mm -hmm. Like basically he was having problems in blocking his run game. And Coach Gaither had given him this pointers that worked. 
and so we get a sense, a kind of window into the ways that Joe Gaither was a great X's and O coach. Yes. And this gets played out probably most significantly in what he calls the split line T formation. Uh, and so this is going to get in. We're going to nerd out and put go for it. Here, Let's do it. Right. Uh, but, you know, the T formation was basically the the kind of what we think of now as a single wing formation that kind of comes up under George Hallis and the Chicago Bears in the 1940s. By the 1940s, 1950s, everybody in the country is running single wing. I mean, uh, the, the T formation. Uh, and and what. Jake Gaither does is he tweaks it. He basically splits his linemen out a little further. They're not all close together. They're like almost a yard and a half, two yards between each player. And so it looks kind of crazy the way that they're lined up when they're all the way across the field. But he does this because he's like, look, I need to change the blocking angles for my run plays because I got four guys in the backfield that can all run the 100-yard dash in under 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. Right. And the world record was like nine seconds. So they're all basically like near world record pace. And including one of those years is Bob Hayes, who's the fastest man in the world. Right? Yes. And so he's like, all I need is a crack. Right. And mm -hmm. so these angles are spreading the defensive line out further and further. And so he's doing this in order to to unleash his backfield. And so in the late 1950s and early 1960s, he has like four seasons in a row where they average like 50 points a game and they don't throw the football, but maybe twice or three times a right. game. Right. Because it is running attack. Because running attack. These dudes are all, you know, they're getting 800 yards. Yeah. He's got three 800 yard backs. And it's like, how is that even possible? Because they're all, you know, three carries for 110 yards, you know, those yes. kind of days. Um, and so that's a kind of genius in really taking something that everybody, every coach is employing and using it to his advantage and then recruiting to that mechanism. You mentioned here, and even in the book, when you described his coaching clinic as integrated, I was shocked because when you think of integration, you always think of black people trying to knock on white folks' door. No, this was Jay Gaither's coaching clinic, and he invited white coaches in. And it mm. kind of spoke to the standing he had and the level of respect and authority that was going on at the black college football level. Mm -hmm. And there's a word you use often in the book that growing up, it was always associated with church. You talk about sporting congregations. Dr. White, what is a sporting congregation? You know, a sporting congregation for me is is the church was the mechanism, right? <laughs> you know, like for black folks in the church, like this is the way we think about organizing. So the church historically is not just a place of worship. It's a place of political activism. It's a place of... Uh, of music. It's a place of education. It, it, it is a multi-purpose kind of location. Mm -hmm. And that uh, we should think about athletics in the same kind of way. And that what it does is that that black college athletics, both in primarily in football, but also included in basketball and other sports as well, serves as a similar kind of space that brings together athletes, coaches, administrators, fans, uh, sports writers, right? Media, yes, Com yes. You know, uh, uh, high school teachers, high school coaches, right? All this is happening. And these are the networks that, that are being built. Uh, and that folks like Gaither or Eddie Robinson or John Merritt, right? They're all basically pastors in this church, right? And so in their own communities, in their own areas, they are organizing um, 
these athletic conventions, right? Like yeah. if we think of them as like religious conventions, right? right. Like this is the way they operated. Uh, and so the sporting congregation for, forced me to really think about not really just simply a biography of Gaither, mm-hmm. not just since an institutional kind of story of Florida A&M, but really thinking about the ways that all these groups intersected to create this great black program, this dominant program that Florida A&M was, because it can't just be coaching greatness or athletes or any of these kinds. Or It's not, Dr. White. It's not. And that's what I enjoyed reading so much. It was like a whole community and everybody contributed. And it wasn't just athletic greatness on on the field and X's and O's. So many people played a part, like we said, the high school coaches, even the college professors. What was Jay Gaither's contribution to the field of physical education? I mean, so one of the things he does is he he is a he has a master's in physical education from the Ohio State University. Uh, and 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 one of the things that's really interesting is that that, you know, Florida as a general, but Florida A&M in particular is really building on this kind of post-war emphasis on um, physical education. And so they're creating a physical education program. So he's thinking about not only am I coaching these guys as as the track coach or the basketball coach or the football coach. But I'm also preparing them to become physical educators at the next level. They're going back into the high schools. They're going back to become teachers, become principals, become high school coaches, become men in their communities, right, as pastors, as doctors, whatever it is, lawyers. They're coming to be kind of community or anchors. And and so for him, the way that he's imagining um, uh, this this space, this this the the space and his responsibility is so much bigger than athletics. And so what he's doing is that the school is just a vehicle. He's just in one area in which the entire HBCU landscape is functioning to train up a generations of black men and women to to improve their communities, to challenge segregation, and to try to make black people more, to have full and and robust lives in an undemocratic world. Character development through athletic success. That is what Mr. Gaither uh, believed in. And I'm trying to paint the picture. Although much of the world and the country was segregated at that time, there was pride in these communities. And they were functioning and thriving and respect for one another. And everybody leaned on one another. You know, I felt great pride just reading it. Like, Jay Gaither was the, he was the college coach in the neighborhood. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was the guy. You know, and as you mentioned, a lot of his alumni went on to be principals and teachers. And that was his network. And, you know, they were really rolling. What would yeah. you what would you consider uh, what would you consider the height of Jake Gaither's run? Uh the early 1960s they 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 go um I think there's a year like 4 years where they go I don't know like 37 and 3 and they average like 49 points a game and they win two national titles uh and lose two they lose two two of the three losses happened in the Orange Blossom Classic that keep them from winning national titles. Um but Jake Gaither's like, there's a run where it's like, I there that he wins the uh, the SIAC, the conference that they're in, mm-hmm. 23 out of the 25 years. One of those years they were co-champs. The other year they finished second and lost by a game. Right, like mm-hmm. it is, it is an unbelievable run uh, of conference dominance. 
and then one of the things that they end up doing is that they really challenge themselves by playing the best programs year in and year out. So they're playing Southern almost every year. They're right. playing Grambling almost, uh, you know, every probably every third year they're playing Grambling. They play Prairie View um, out of the SWAC because the SWAC was really probably from top to bottom the most dominant conference of that era. They're playing all those programs uh, year in and year out, and that's how they're measuring themselves. And so Gaither, you know, I, my favorite thing is they lost like uh, three or four games one year. They sent out a press release, press release to uh, to the media, like apologizing for losing <laughs> so many games. Yeah, yeah, they were rolling. They were rolling uh, with the sporting congregation. That was one example that stood out to me, and I felt like it it, it, it epitomized the strength and perhaps the importance of it. Bob Hayes. Bob Hayes would would win an Olympic medal. Was that 1964? 100-meter mm-hmm. dash, fastest man in the world. He would go on to play for the Dallas Cowboys, winning a, a Super Bowl. But when he was a little-known freshman, he was arrested for a crime that many people didn't think he had committed. He had actually signed a confession while sitting in jail for a week. And once the community got a hold of it, and Jake Gaither did his investigation... They went to bat for that young man and got him out of jail. And had that community not been in place, that would have been a gold medalist and a Super Bowl champion that we would have never heard of. Yeah. I mean, Bob Hayes is the quintessential example of the sporting community, right? Mm -hmm. That his high school coach in St. Augs was uh, a former player at FAMU, and he had told him that we've got this young man that can – you know, whose whose home life was really rough, right? right? Like impoverished, his father wasn't around a lot. Um, and so, but they knew that he had certain kind of athletic talents, but he also, that Florida A&M as an institution and Jay Gaither as a coach could bring the best out of him and give him an mm-hmm. opportunity at having a successful life. And as you noted that he gets arrested um, in this thing, signs a confession, it is a, you know, is a tragedy, but Gaither does, you know, Gaither knows everybody in the white community and everybody in the black community. Yeah. So when I when people like he does an investigation, what does he do? Like he calls up everybody and asks them what they say, right? <laughs> yeah. Like he's the most respected black person in the city of Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. And they tell him what happened. Um, people don't lie to him. And he goes to bat. He tells the judge, he was like, Look, you give me the you give me this young man, and I will make him a productive citizen. Mm-hmm. And the judge agrees. And so the way we think about segregation and the kind of racism that functions, of course it's there. But people like Gaither were able to tread on kind of paternalism and this kind of relationship with kind of powerful white folks that allow for them to protect and save young men like uh, like Bob Hayes. Can I say one story real quick? Go for it. Because the Bob Hayes, Bob Hayes thing, I'm, I'm in the early parts of this book and – uh, this is right when Bob Hayes is about to get inducted into the to the NFL Hall of Fame. And so the NFL Network I'm the, uh, runs this special about Bob Hayes getting into the, And they're like, he's the most successful track guy to ever play professional football. And I was upset because, like, Bob Hayes was not a track guy. Mm-hmm. Bob Hayes was a football guy. He goes to Florida a to play football. And they realize while he's there that he's extremely fast. Now, they have a bunch of fast players. So, like, a lot of the football players are already on the track team. Right. The assistant coach for the for the football team is the head track coach. He's like, come on over in the spring. It's only in the spring of his freshman year that they realize that not only is he fast, he's, like, faster than everybody we got <laughs> and in the country, right? right? Like, like, And so they make it out to say, like, he's 
they they imply that he's like Willie Gall or Ronaldo Nehemiah, like those track guys who played in the NFL. Right. When in reality, he was a football guy who ran track. Um, if you ever see Bob Hayes run, it is not classic form, right? It mm -hmm. is a dude who is like pigeon toed. Um, it is a dude who is just ex like built like a running back in right. many ways. Um, powerfully built and he just is able to turn that speed in, that he had in football into track speed uh and so that he goes into the nfl he was always a football guy uh and i think that one of the things that we did a little bit of a disservice to his legacy in many ways by saying he was a track guy who played football right. rather than a football guy who ran track gotcha gotcha we are talking about dr Derek e white's book blood sweat and tears jake gaither florida a&m and the history of black college football. Now, Dr. White, we talked about the man Jay Gaither, how respected he was, uh, how much of a pioneer he was in black college football. But there came a time when he was challenged by his community and he was actually called an Uncle Tom. Mm -hmm. And his, his uh, I guess, not his love, but his love for the black community was questioned. Why? So Jay Gaither is, you know, he comes up, he's born at the, the, the near the beginning of the 20th century, comes up in these black institutions, Knoxville College, St. Paul's, and eventually Florida A&M. Mm -hmm. And he builds this program after World War II, survives two brain tumors and surgery. Um, and then by the time you get to the mid-1960s, we having the whole you know, the whole student movement and Florida and Tallahassee and across the nation Civil calling for, right, calling for integration. Mm -hmm. And Jake Gaither had cultivated in order to have this success. Right. He cultivates this relationship with powerful white people to, that for those who are not unaware, who are not aware, Tallahassee is the capital of the state of Florida. Florida A&M is literally down the street from the state capitol. So mm -hmm. like he is talking to the governor of the state. He's talking to state co state senators, state congressmen. Like they are coming to football games. They sit in a roped off section uh, at the 50 yard line at Florida A&M mm -hmm. games at, at key for key games. And he's cultivating this relationship to try to build his program, to make sure that they get the resources that they need. Um, and so this relationship runs afoul of young folks who are like, you know, calling for black power eventually. And they don't really like that kind of approach. Uh, and so T Jay Gaither's, you know, philosophy about controlling and keeping his his program in power by appealing to, to, to successful and powerful white folks in the state of Florida runs afoul of folks who are talking about self-determination. And so one of the ways I try to thread this needle and think about this is that the students are, from their perspective, as as teenagers, as 20-year-olds, have no experience of how Jay Gaither built that program right. from the ground, you know, how those folks built the program from the ground up. Uh, and then two, that Jay Gaither was also an institutionalist. Like, he's not actually calling for individual integration. He talks about how, you know, segregation is wrong, but the way that we're doing integration is wrong as well, because he saw that if integrating meant losing Florida A&M, 
his football program and the institution, then we we will have lost more than we have gained through integration. And so he's trying to he's actually making a much more subtle argument. But at the same time, he's not a fan of black power. He's not a fan of the way in which students are expressing themselves. <laughs> he wasn't. He's very, he's very much an old school black person. Like, you know, he's a football coach. So he's like, I need you to present yourself in a particular kind of way. I don't want you wearing these afros. I don't want you attending these marches. Right. And so he's very both protective of his players and, and his program. But at the same time, he's also trying to protect his players, his program, and the institution from what he kind of sees coming, which is the kind of loss. And so I, I use in the book a couple examples, but the main one is that the Negro Leagues, like he grew up when the Negro Leagues were dominant, and that he saw that after Jackie Robinson, by the time, you know, within five years, the Negro Leagues are a shell of their former selves. And so, you know, what is gained and what is lost through this process of integration he had a clear working model while looking at the Negro Leagues. Before integration, Jay Gaither and Florida A&M had a monopoly on a black talent coming through Florida. As far as the high school recruits, like the pipeline was going straight to his school. So, you know, he's being criticized for not really supporting the black power movement. And he's kind of telling these young folks not to revolt. And the reader, I'm... I'm trying to figure out what his motivation was. Was it football related? Did he just want to keep his football institution intact? Or was he scared of repercussions? Like, I, I don't know, Dr. White. Like, what was the motivation? Is he so, Uncle Tom? Or, like, what, what is it? So I think, I think his motivations are twofold, right? Like, his motivations are, um, one, he is definitely trying to keep his football program running. But he's also very aware of keeping Florida A&M in its position, mm -hmm. right? Um, there, you know, there is a push, and he's he sees this. When he retires, um, there's this massive push for integration in the state of Florida. And politicians, state politicians, are like, why do we have two schools that are like two miles apart? Why are Florida State and Florida A&M both in existence? Why are we paying right. for both of these schools when they should just merge. Right. And what merge means is that they're getting rid of Florida A&M and everybody's got to go to Florida State, right? right? And so he under, he kind of understands that this is kind of what's, you know, um, motivating this discussion that, you know, people who are all about segregation, holding the line on segregation, wake up two years later and they're like, oh yeah, we should integrate. That means close Florida A&M. Mm -hmm. And because what's really happening is that in the 1960s, as integration starts to come to the South, they're looking at the NFL rosters and they're like the black players in the NFL had all went to Grambling, Prairie View, uh, you know, Texas Southern, Tennessee State, Florida A&M. And they're like, man, those those players should probably go to Florida, Alabama, LSU. Should go to the white schools. Right. Like they're looking at this in a very kind of selfish way. And so the, the fastest way to encourage those uh good student athletes to come to their institution is to close the black colleges. And so this is a this is a real threat for a lot of black colleges is that there's a real kind of public and also quiet push to to close black colleges because now that, you know, segregation is over, we don't need these schools. They actually closed Florida A&M's law school, right? They do. Another thing and you they, and, and they opened one at Florida at Florida State. Yikes. Yikes. And that's one thing you, you pointed out in the book. I would have never uh, considered it otherwise. Many of these schools are public institutions. Florida State, uh, Florida A&M, uh, Alabama's where Nick Saban is at. 
So they are in line for public subsidies, right? Mm -hmm. So how come there was such an imbalance? And there was one time you tell a story about Florida A&M was set to get a, a new stadium. Initially, they wanted 15,000 fans, and then the, the board came back and said, no, just take 5,000. And then the board came back and said, How, we'll just build you half a stadium. Like, yeah. that, why the imbalance? I mean, racism. They, right. they have simply <laughs> racism. Yeah. Like, they, they are doing everything they can to prop up the flagship white institutions at the expense of HBCUs. And so you see this in the contemporary landscape. Florida, students at Florida A&M uh, just sued the state of Florida because they are owed, you know, they've been underfunded by to the tune of almost like $2 billion. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is really a, a, a longstanding practice. Like one of the ways I frame this is that Florida A&M was rich in human resources, but they were, they really lacked material resources, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, what they're selling and what they sold and what they continue to sell is this community, this congregation that's going to love you. But what they're not going to be able to do often because of this chronic underfunding is have the the, the brand new locker room, right? right? The freshest new thing. Or for regular students, the, the dorms are going to be old, right? Like there's going to not, because there's just not multi-millions of dollars coming in from either donors, boosters, or through tuition. And so that kind of material imbalance is something that Gaither actually deals with. And part of his argument is like, well, why are we getting less when we're the best team in this state? Yes, yes. You know, I, I, was, I was thinking like, well, take it to present day. Of, of course Florida State gets more money. They're bigger. They're better. But that wasn't always the case. That yeah, imbalance started yeah. somewhere. Yeah, especially Florida State. Florida State started <laughs> was a women's college. Um, you know, there was a University of Florida, Florida College for Women, and then uh, Florida A&M, right, for, for black students. Right. Uh, and then after World War II, Florida's College for Women becomes Florida State. And so Florida A&M had been a co-ed college for, you know, at that point, you know, six decades before Florida State had even thought about playing football, right? And so they're funneling lots of money into Florida State to get them kind of caught up. And part of the people who are supporting Florida State are like, we're looking at why are we spending money on Florida A&M when we need Florida State to, to catch up? You mm -hmm. know, the state of Florida, I don't, you know, because New York, like, like Florida and Florida State are such rivals that Florida refused to play Florida State for most years right. until 1955, where the state legislature stepped in and was required Florida to play Florida State in football. Like, this is this is how, you know, how how much emphasis that politicians took in the kind of white sporting world. And so FAMU is getting caught in that. Mm -hmm. With the struggle that was going on, gave the kind of wanted people to stand pat. And then you had this revolutionary movement. And there was an individual you, you, you quoted in the book, Dr. Harry Edwards, who I have a tremendous respect for, who's still around. Uh, he's kind of like the father of sociology and sport. He would actually be with the uh, 49ers in the 80s and mm -hmm. helping them, uh, I guess, keep their team together. Uh, he was critical of those that wanted to kind of stand pat. Uh, let's see what he said. Uh, he's been on it. Edwards argued that HBCU curriculum function to keep blacks in their place as second-class citizens. Safe educational programs allowed by whites included an emphasis on agriculture, music, and physical education. Uh he mocked black colleges by suggesting that A&M stood for athletics and music rather than agricultural and mechanical. Now, this is a smart guy. How come they didn't view 
being independent as suitable? I, that's a good question. You should ask Heavy Edwards. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I mean, I think part of it is. So I say this: that Harry Edwards is obviously we owe a tremendous debt of us who talk about racist sports. Yeah. Is Harry Edwards both in his activism and in, and in his scholarship? But I also say he also had a tremendous blind spot when it come to when it came to HBCUs, right? Like he did not see them, and so he is a person who, in some ways, I think accepted the kind of white discourse about the kind of inferiority of black colleges. Yeah. And 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 in doing so, you know, he went to San Jose State, he was at Cornell, right? So he's in these predominantly white spaces where he's getting treated as a second-class citizen. Mm. Now, if you talk to anybody who graduated from an HBCU, they'll tell you that we didn't always have the best material resources, but the 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 schools loved them as people. Mm-hmm. This is why homecoming means so much to them, right? Because it is a place that shaped them into adults in love and with care. The thing that you talk about with black students is that they survived predominantly white institutions, especially when you talked about folks who went to school in the 60s. Yeah. They survived like, you know, I can't believe I made it through here. <laughs> and, and, and you know, and then the school belatedly honors them like, oh, thank you for opening these doors. Um, but black colleges do do something else, right? Mm-hmm. Earl Lloyd, who went to West Virginia State, he talked about it, it's like a mother, right? Black colleges love their students, right? And they student athletes. And Harry Edwards, I don't think, fully appreciated what that ha- that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And so it was easy for him to just look at the material deficiencies that black colleges face and say, well, these are less than these white colleges. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, wow. He was rather critical, you know, and now present day, I start listening to Malcolm and stuff. Malcolm X, he talks about independence. These HBCUs during Jake Gaither's time sounds like Disneyland. You got black coaches, black professors, black administrators, black president. Like it sounds like a place of love where you can thrive and be successful. So it was it was really just shocking to hear those comments from uh, uh, Dr. Edwards. What did integration mean for black college football? So integration means for black college football that they're getting squeezed at two ends, right? Mm-hmm. That the NFL uh, professional football desegregates and in robust numbers in the 40s. And so that by the 1960s, because of the AFL, uh, it's challenged to the NFL that we see rapid integration at the highest level of professional football. And then on the back end, at a high school level, that that by the mid-60s, that states, the federal government is starting to force states to integrate their high K through 12 uh, high schools. And so that for a school like Florida A&M, one of the things that Jay Gaither used to always brag about, he was like, you know, it's like a fishtail that, you know, 90 percent, 95 percent, 85 percent of the high school coaches in the state of Florida were my my former players or right. Florida A&M alums that those players begin their schools, black high schools begin to close or they be, you know, high schools become junior highs. They begin to merge. The high school coaches become predominantly white across the state of Florida. And so they begin to send their players to predominantly white institutions. Right. Yes. yes. Uh, And so they are beginning to influence the direction that student athletes are going. And so that when he was getting the best players, it wasn't just because black folks had no other place to go. It was also that because Florida A&M was the best program, right. but he people were also in their ear like, hey, 
this is the best program. Let me explain to you why you should go to Florida A&M so that when the coaches showed up on campus and offered them a scholarship, they, of course, they've all they've only heard about Florida A&M. Right. Now they're hearing about all these other schools, Florida State, Georgia Tech, Xavier, all kinds of schools all across the country that are offering football and, and new, quote unquote, new opportunities for uh, black players. Uh, and so Jake Gaither is really being squeezed. And so integration means uh, that they limit the number, the, the kinds of players that are able or that are willing to do to come to Florida A&M. Two, I, we got to be very honest about recruiting black players at this particular time. They were also paying them. <laughs> the predominantly uh, white institutions. Yes, they yeah. were definitely, They, you know, the early, the first, the first wave were like, you know, racial pioneers. But when it comes to, by the time you get to the mid seventies, uh, I mean, the early seventies through 1980, when Herschel Walker shows up at, 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 uh, university of Georgia, you're really talking about, a, you know, that the very top stratum of black athletes are being induced to go. So, you know, many people, your listeners may have watched the ESPN 30 for 30 on Marcus Dupree, his recruitment to the University of Oklahoma, where he's you know <laughs> showing up in, you know, Camaros and Trans Ams and all that right. kind of stuff. Like that was pretty much par for the course. Uh, and that's hard to do because, you know, the recruiting budget at black colleges was tiny. Right. They were relying on their you know networks of alumni. Yeah to really help them do it. And so integration slowly kind of peels that kind of talent level. And then there's this kind of general logic that, that the civil rights movement kind of induces. It suggests that black colleges, because of its material inequalities, are somehow inferior to these white colleges that have, you know, so they got, they would rather go to white colleges with better material, you know, better dorms, better equipment, better libraries, uh, but professors who thought that they shouldn't be here and right. classmates were only happy when they took the football right. to then a black college where they have less of those material things. Where they had the, whole... the congregation, Dr. White. <laughs> exactly. And so that that squeezes them. And so there are only a handful of coaches, I think, at the HBCU level that are able to like make that transition. Eddie Robinson, and one of the reasons going back to our earlier conversation, why he's at the top is that he makes that he makes that transition for Grambling into integration. And part of it is that Grambling and Louisiana is is extremely rural, and so that mm -hmm. kind of gives um, it gives uh, Eddie Robinson a little bit of inherent advantages as opposed to Jay Gaither. And then the other coach is John Merritt at Tennessee State, right. and some of that's a, about the uniqueness of Black Nashville and and that Vanderbilt was never really a threat mm -hmm. in the same kinds of ways that. <laughs> that Florida and Florida State right. were in Miami were to Florida A&M. Integration kind of led to the end of that dominant era of black college football. You know, like you mentioned with Jake Gay that had the recruiting pipeline because all of the principals and teachers at the high school level were his former uh, players. Those schools got closed or they got changed to hand it over to white folks and they started sending the players other places. And that was kind of really the end. It's kind of like where we are today now where black house football is kind of like the token sport. Oh, it's cute. It's not as dominant as they once were. Like, what do you think of the current uh, iteration of black house football? We got some big names out there. Deion Sanders, Jackson State, Eddie George, former Heisman Trophy winner at TSU. Is this kind of a revival? Like, where are we today? I mean, I think Dion is 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 obviously getting a tremendous amount of press for what he's been able mm -hmm. to accomplish at um, Jackson State. 
you know, I think Dion is a unique individual in for this particular moment, right? That Dion walked into a job with, to be perfectly honest, his own media cachet that no coach, black, white, or other, mm -hmm. typically has. Um, and Dion was able to been able to marshal that with a real strong kind of organizational plan to turn those idea, turn that kind of celebrity that he already has into real action in terms of recruiting, in terms of publicity, in terms of success on the field, right? Uh, and so I think there's a lot to be said. That'll be difficult. It's been difficult for other programs to replicate at that level. Mm -hmm. But I think black colleges have been over the, even over before Dion have been really improving uh, in very kind of important pockets. North Carolina A&T had a run a handful of years ago where they were where they were they were a problem, right? Mm -hmm. They're beating East Carolina. They're beating uh, a number of predominantly white institutions. Uh, and then they, you know, and like all, it's hard to sustain at that level for every FCS school, right? Like these these runs, with the exception of maybe North Dakota State, are hard to sustain at that level. You lose your coaches, you lose your coaching staff. Mm -hmm. People are starting to pick at, you know, you know, hey, where are you recruiting these guys from? Look, we need to get into those spaces. Um, and so it becomes a real challenge. But black colleges, I think, as a whole, are in a another renaissance, right? That black colleges. That, you know, given the last president's hostility uh, and the kind of racism that emerged in the last administration and that have been on campus, um, black students are really starting to, to consider and reconsider attending black colleges because they just, you know, you just ain't got to deal with that every day. And mm -hmm. like, as we talked about that congregation, right, whether it's sporting or not, still exists, right? And there's a kind of cultural moment that folks um, are really desiring at this particular moment. And black colleges have always done that, but their numbers are up. You know, enrollment's up at Florida A&M, enrollment's up at Jackson State, enrollment's up at North Carolina A&T and Howard. And so, you know, the question that always is going to be the limiting factor is, you know, will the material resources, um, you know, keep up in order to keep this new student population, uh, you know, content to, to stay, to graduate, for the next generation, can he turn that mm -hmm. over? And so I think black colleges are in a really good moment. Uh, but what does that mean for football long-term? Who knows? Mm -hmm. I think that they're at, they're in the FCS level. I would like to see them be more competitive across a number of teams, not just Jackson State. Mm -hmm. um, and so seeing Florida A&M, seeing South Carolina State last year, uh, seeing North Carolina A&T, you know, like those programs need to be successful to kind of, it can't just be Jackson State carrying the water for all HBCU. They need several programs to carry the water. Right. I'm currently working as an assistant basketball coach at a high school here, and I'm working under one of my former teammates, one of my young homies. And it's not the most lucrative opportunity, but you can't put a price on the respect and how I feel when I walk in those buildings. You know, and I look and I hear these coaches every offseason talk about, yo, we need more black coaches or they'll give them a, a, a special assistant to the special assistant position. Like, you know, when I read your book and I, I hear about these congregations, these communities, guys were respected. Guys were community leaders. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that is amazing. And there's something in your book that I'm going to take with me forever. It said we want to be politically integrated but culturally autonomous. Yeah, mm -hmm. I want the rights of a citizen, but I, I want to do my own thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's respect over there too. I mean, it, to be perfectly honest, it's on, you know, you're at this level, right? It's on, it's hard to convince young people they're at the, the tip of the spear, right? They control, mm -hmm. right? Travis Hunter's recruitment to Jackson State 
brought more publicity to Dion than than Dion did, right? Because he had flipped this the number one or number two player in high school from Florida State to Jackson State. And if we could get those kind of conversations where very talented players, basketball, football, track and field, uh, women's basketball, that they are no longer just simply attending predominantly white institutions, but they're making conscious decisions about the kinds of institutions that they have. And so I think there's a couple things here, right? One is that, you know, coaches at the, at the, you know, the, at the high school level have to really push, you know, if they want to have this kind of autonomy, you got to push your best players to black coaches, yeah, right. At HBCUs, but also at PWIs, right. Like, you know, we got to have more Don Staley's, right. We need to have more Mike Loxley's. We need to have more coaches that have influence, right. Mm -hmm. So many of these kids, are going to the same kinds of. I mean, I work at the University of Kentucky, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I say this all the time. I like Coach Cal. Coach Cal is honest. Like he's like, I'm here to help these young men get the money that they deserve <laughs> for their talent. Like that's that's a. I like honesty, yeah. right? Um, but at the same time, they can still take their talents to a black coach and get and then and you know, and part of what get, doesn't get quite always seen is like how those networks matriculate down the down the level. And so what I mean is, you know. Who gets to be a grad assistant, yeah. right? Who gets to be the you know the third assistant coach, yeah. right? Who gets to draw up plays instead of just being tasked as a recruiter, right? Like all those things, those subtle things in the way that coaches and co coaching works, um, it operates in a in a space that like you know seventeen year old kids can't see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to be perfectly yes, honest, yes, but 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 their mentors can, right? And mm -hmm. I think that that's just laying out those decisions and not, you know, not having them be overwhelmed by the fanciness of the locker room mm -hmm. or overwhelmed by, uh, you know, they wear Nike or <laughs> Adidas or under, like yeah. whatever that is. Right. Or even overwhelmed by just NIL money. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like helping them understand that like, Hey, this NIL money is, is, is important. It could be life changing. It could be necessary. That might be the decision that you need to make right now. But at the same time, you what other factors should we be considering at the same time? What happens if you don't make it to the NFL or to the NBA? What happened? Like, what kind of networks are they going to be bringing? So asking different kinds of questions, like asking not about the star players, but what are the other players doing who didn't make the NFL? Sure. Where are they at? Mm -hmm. and, and did they graduate? Did they where are they? At? Are they on you know Wall Street? Are they community leaders like? That's the way you need to think about the entire corpus of decision making. And too often, and and rightfully so, like, you know, I was 17 once. You ain't thinking about like you ain't thinking about all that. Yes. And that's where your parents and mentors come in, is that you know, the mentors can't just be like, yo, you know, Adidas is sliding me this money, so you should consider these Adidas schools. Sure. Right. Like they we gotta help them make better decisions and and say it's still their decision but giving them more context and more information. And that's the only way we're going to change that basketball, that people need to start considering going to North Carolina uh, central, right? Like mm -hmm. going to play for these programs or going to Howard and thinking about how do we turn these conversations around and it not just be elite basketball, one and done decisions, but sure. how do we have conversations about life, community development and, and all that. And I try to tell my friends, Y'all need to be listening to the black scholars. <laughs> I find the black scholar is probably the most, some of the most fearless men in this country. 
So, Dr. White, I'm going to ask you, what does it mean to you to be a black scholar? Like, how would you describe your duties, your responsibility? What's that mean? I mean, being a black scholar means being fully, you know, uh, aware of both the past, present and future possibilities of black communities. Right. Like that we understand, you know, because of my work as a historian, understanding kind of where we've come and where we are and, and where we need to go. Um, I think that, you know, we we do a lot. You know, people think, what do you do as a professor? You like you teach these classes, you write these books. Yeah. And I mentor students. I, I'm in a ton of committees. I go to community events. Um, like we're operating on so many different registers at the same time um, that it is important, right? That that is uh, that's part of our calling in many cases. And so, you know, black men and women like myself who are who are who are scholars who spent years studying this information are also uh, public facing scholars doing this kind of work, talking to communities, talking to podcasts in churches. Uh, you know, in community events, uh, you know, both locally and nationally. And I think that that is uh, an important part. And I think that it's also, you know, you know, thinking about the Kyrie and Kanye thing, that the thing that's most disturbing is, is that they have such huge platforms. But, you know, like Kanye was like, I don't read books. And I'm like, well, like, why are we even like you admitted that? Right. Like, why are you why are we even listening to you? Because you could like you could put words together and make these be like like what we've done. And so I think that there's really a kind of disappointment and a kind of arrogance in our kind of celebrity culture that being a celebrity or being wealthy somehow gives you particular kinds of knowledge. And there's a kind of unwillingness to, to humble themselves and learn. And I think that that actually is the most disrespectful part of this contemporary landscape is that, you know, um, you know, you can't just read one book. You know this, right? Yeah. You can't one book ain't gonna answer. If you read one book, then you need to read like hundreds more, right? You got to be constantly, you know, surrounding yourself with new people who know more than you, and and encouraging to think in different kinds of ways as you fulfill your own kind of intellectual journey. Uh, and I think that that's you know, I think that's part of the process. And I think that what we're witnessing right now. Uh, in this kind of public, you know, Kyrie and Kanye moment, this the, the kind of anti-Semitism that they are so strident about is um, is uber problematic because that's the same kind of anti, you know, the anti-Semitism, anti-blackness, uh, uh, you know, homophobia, all that stuff is stemming from the same kind of hate, right. uh, and it and it has real consequences in this kind of particularly landscape, right? Like there are real physical, violent consequences for these communities, uh, and so I think that you know we have to be not only respectful, uh, intentional, and intelligent, but we also have to be understanding about what the kind of intentionality can happen on the back end uh, uh, for these kind of careless actions, these careless talk. And so, you know, I think that being a scholar is 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 a calling, you know, in some ways, um, it allows for you to go in a lot of rooms and, and, and that you wouldn't normally go into. Um, but at the same time, it is a, is a lot of responsibility of basically, you know, some cases translating the past, you know, talking to elders and understanding, you know, helping them understand hip hop culture because they ain't get it. Right. But also talking to folks who grew up on hip hop, helping them understand elders and trying to see both ways. And so to circle this back to someone like Jay Gaither, mm -hmm. you know, being a scholar is always understanding by why students were calling him an Uncle Tom. And at the same time, understanding why Jay Gaither was making that same kind of position because he saw himself as doing kind of black institutional power, even though he would never call it as such. Got it. Blood, sweat, and tears. Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the history of black college football. 
Dr. White, where can people pick up this book? Where can they follow you? I know you got a podcast. Plug it all. Go for it. Yeah, so you get the book on Amazon and your local independent bookstores. Uh, Bookshop has it. Uh, you can also get it from the University of North Carolina Press if you want to organize, or, order directly from them. I have a podcast with my colleague and friend Lou Moore called the Black Athlete Podcast, where we talk about many of these kind of athletic issues in a kind of historical context. Uh, I'm also tw I'm on Twitter, uh, at least for now, uh, <laughs> at, at Blackstar1906. Uh, and where, you know, I basically try to tweet, talk about what's going on in the world. Uh, and it's a good way for folks to get into the scholarly world. The best part about Twitter, at least for me, is the connections among other scholars. I'm, I'm learning something every day, seeing new articles, helping me transform my thinking. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm at. Also at the University of Kentucky uh, in the history department in African-American Africana Studies. Dr. White, you're the best, brother. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. All right. Take care.